Now, last week we looked at faith and prejudice and seeing that God is no respecter of persons, those that claim the name of Christ. We can't hold prejudice. Even though you grew up a certain way, you have certain experiences as a believer and you come to the Word of God, you see what the Word of God says about judging people, deciding who's worthy and who's not worthy of your fellowship, your friendship. You see, that's sin. Well, today we want to look at verses 14 through 17, and it talks about faith and practice. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you've given us the word of God and you've given us the Holy Spirit so we can understand your word and we can be strengthened and empowered to be obedient. Lord, stir us up to be obedient. Lord, use the word as a light, as a laser to look into our hearts as your children to point out those things that need to change. Lord, use your word to convict those that do not know you, they're not part of your family, to draw them to yourself. We'll give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Faith and practice. A couple years ago, we were out at uh, Founders Week, Moody Founders Week, and um, David Platt, he's the president of the International Mission Board, was there to speak to us, and he gave us an unforgettable illustration, I think, of this passage. He said, what if I came in here and I was kind of flustered and a little bit sweaty and I rushed in and said, sorry, I'm late. I was out on the freeway trying to get here on time and I got a flat tire and I pulled over the side of the road and while I was changing the flat tire, a Mack truck hit me going 60 miles an hour and hurt. Now I'm here. You say, well... You may have been thinking you got hit by a Mack truck, but if you didn't get hit by a Mack truck going 60 miles an hour because that would change your life. It would change your life. It would change the way you walked, change the way you looked, probably change the way you think if you could think anymore. It would change your life. And yet people think they can come to the creator God, the judge of the whole earth, and just kind of give them a nod grab a little flavor, and call themselves a believer. The Bible doesn't teach that. The church is normally a mixed multitude of people that are saved and lost because we want to be inviting people to come to hear the word. But just as in James' day and our day and the Apostle Paul's experience, there are people that want a title and they want a flavor, but they don't really want Christ. They don't want to change. They want to tell people they've been hit by the truck, but they don't really want to submit to that. They don't want to submit to Christ. Their lifestyle, their values, their desires, their motivations are unchanged, but now they have a title. But Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. True preachers challenge James, Paul, Peter. They all challenge, make sure you're saved. Here's some things to think about. Are these things in your life? Are these your motivation? Are these your values? Peter wrote in 2 Peter 1.3, seeing that God's divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence, 
And then he listed all those things that should be in our life, those virtues, loving one another, desiring to grow in the word, a long list of virtues. Then in verse 9, he says, for he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. So he says two things. You either, you either got eye problems and you've backslidden, or you were never saved. Verse 10, therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. Make sure you're saved. Go back to the foundation. Go to the word of God and say, is this what my faith is in? Because when you come to Christ, when you truly receive Christ, it changes everything about your life. Your motivations, your desires, your trajectory, everything about your life. But this isn't new. John the Baptist in Matthew 3 all these baptisms are going on. This is a new thing for Jews to be baptized. And they're going out and they're confessing their sins. They're giving a testimony. And the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they thought they'd just kind of go along because they don't want to lose favor with the people. So they got in line to be baptized. And John the Baptist stopped them. And he said, who warned you, brood of vipers, to flee from the wrath to come? Now, John the Baptist was not known for political correctness. But he did care about people and he cared about God. He said, you're not going to get in line and just go through the motions. Now, some churches don't care about that, and that's why their message is soft and weak, and it's not biblical. Their message is, you can do it, right? Just think positive. It's about you. He said, therefore, bring fruit in keeping with repentance. What did he say? I want to hear a testimony of how God has changed your life. That's what I want to hear. Jesus and Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount said, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. The inner light that God gives us people always shine outwardly in the form of good deeds. Paul wrote in Philippians 2, 11 and 12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for that is God at work in you. It's not just a doctrinal statement. It's not some mental ascent, just thinking the right things about Jesus or knowing some historical facts about Jesus. It's possessing his life. Jesus concluded the parable of the soils in Matthew 13 by saying, the one on whom the seed was sown in the good soil, this is the man who hears the word, understands it, and who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some 100-fold, some 60, some 30-fold. Jesus did not teach about a person that comes to him, follows him, and then there's fruitless. We used to have an old fellow in the church Many of you wouldn't remember him. Some of you would, Burr Rob. And, and Burr was a faithful old fellow, but he had a certain theology uh, about people coming to Christ because his thing was to go knock on doors and try to get people to make a decision within a short, uh, very short space of time. And so he developed the theology because he had a lot of people pray a prayer with him, but nobody came to church except for Billy Wiley. And Billy said a prayer and got saved later. Billy felt bad. That old guy was at my door. I guess I should go to church once in a while. So he started coming, got in a small group, and began to hear the word of God and came to Christ. He graduated this year from seminary. What a thing, huh? But for the most part, people would, you know, pray a prayer with him. In fact, uh, uh, Travis D. told me one time that he came to his house, and he said, I just felt bad for the old guy, so I prayed with him. But, you know, move along. So Bird developed a... Theology, he's with the Lord now, so he knows better. But 
His theology was, well, Paul, he says, I think it's just like the Bible talks about new birth. Some are just born, stillborn. I'm like, whoa, the Bible doesn't talk about that. He added that in there, I suppose, so we could feel better about the fact that all these people praying, praying prayers, nothing happened. There was no life. Jesus doesn't know about that kind. Paul didn't know about that kind. In John 8, there's this amazing passage we're going through with our small group uh, a little while ago. John 8, 31. Listen, Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him. They're believers, right? They had believed him. And he said this, if you continue in my word, then truly are disciples of mine. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Now, if they really were believers, they would be receiving his word. You know what they said? Listen to this. The truth will make you free. We are Abraham's descendants, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. What? Um, what about the whole Passover thing with Egypt? You were not enslaved? That sounds like people who put a title on and say, sin's not a problem to me. I, I can quit anytime I want. The truth is you just don't want to. When I hear people talk about that, I'm really struggling with sin. The truth is you're probably not struggling with it. You're just floating downstream like any dead fish. You know, so he, he challenged it. Well, we haven't enslaved anyone. He said, the answer said to him, Abraham's our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me. He's talking to people that said they believed him. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It's because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Now listen, I don't know what you have in your mind about Jesus. You know, kind of a guy with long, flowing hair, plucking a guitar, and everything's cool. This is Jesus' words. Jesus cared about people, so he confronted them. In love, but he confronted them. That's not a, that's kind of a harsh, you are of your father, the devil. Huh? Hmm. Why? Because he loved them. In, in John 6, he feeds the 5,000, then he goes across the lake to another place, and they, they got the next day, and they say, hey, where'd he go? So they followed him around there. And Jesus said to them, you know, it's so sad you didn't care about the miracle. That didn't blow you away. It was just food. That's all you cared about. You got a free meal. This is, well, in the old, old days, you know, God gave our, our, our fathers the bread of heaven. He said, no, 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 that was manna. Manna literally means what is it? They ate what is it because they didn't know what it was. What is it? They ate what is it? For 40 years it sustained them. He said, I'm the bread of heaven. They said, oh, well, evermore give us this bread. So he began to teach them the doctrine of his shed blood, giving his life on the cross. And he said, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you're not going to have any part of me. And they went, oh, what? what? And it says they all went away. And you can see the humanness of Jesus. He's 100% God, yet he's still 100% human. And his heart was so heavy. He turns to the disciples. I mean, they just left. The disciples, he said, will you go away too? Here's what Peter said. They didn't understand either, but they didn't leave. Peter said, where are we going to go? Thou hast the words of life. The disciples would ask him, Lord, why do you speak in parables? Because he's wanting people to think. 
about real decision, about their real choices in life. You see, it's never been follow Jesus by just say a prayer, ask Jesus in your heart, and then God's going to make everything great for you. That is the message many people are preaching. That is not Jesus' message. That's not his invitation. His invitation is, if any man would come after me, let him what? Deny himself. Realizing you're bankrupt spiritually, you can do nothing to save yourself except his redemption, and then take up your cross and follow him. So he begins to explain to the disciples, listen, the words that I speak in you, eat in my flesh, drink in my blood. Those, those words are spiritual. Years ago, I was helping my, my friend, old John D. Ty, to get through his deacon training, and so I helped him. I got him a MacArthur Study Bible, because that'll help you, and, and I helped him write some papers. And uh, one of the papers he wrote was on this passage, John 6. And he got through there studying, and he said, you know, Paul, this isn't talking about communion, is it? And I said, no, it's not, John. It's talking about salvation. Are you a partaker of the life of Christ? Because if you've partaken of the life of Christ, spiritually, his DNA is what's in you and what drives you. And that's why Christians ought to look a certain way, talk a certain way, have the certain kinds of values. Now, the Bible doesn't say what the church building should look like. It doesn't even say what time in the week we should meet. There's so many things that have become those unmovable things for Christians what he said is your life should be different. John 15, he said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Every branch that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. He says, so you will know people by their fruits. In, John, in 1 John 3, John writes, little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. Is he talking about perfection? No. He's talking about a lifestyle. Because the difference about believers, 1 John 1, 9, is we're always confessing our sin. Unbelievers are always justifying their sin, covering it up, comparing with other people. How am I looking now? How am I coming out now? John MacArthur said, the church today desperately needs to recognize and deal with the soul-damning idea that mere acknowledgement of the gospel facts as being true is sufficient for salvation. We must clearly and forcefully counter the deception and delusion that knowing and accepting the truth about Jesus is equivalent to having saving faith in him. And James will not permit such falsehood to go on challenge. Now, he's not saying we're saved by works. Get this clear. We're saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. There's going to be fruit because you have the Holy Spirit now. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Salvation. The next verse, verse 10. But we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works that we should walk in them. They were, they were prepared. That we, God has a purpose for your life. He saved you on purpose. He gifted you on purpose. And he's called you to fulfill that purpose for your life. Well, verses 14 through 17, we see useless faith. Verse 14, empty confession. What use is it, my brethren, 
What use is it if someone says he has faith, but he has no work? Can that faith save him? What James is doing, he's just going to make people think. Because there were people in his congregation that had the right mental assent, they knew all the right doctrines, but they couldn't forgive, they couldn't get rid of bitterness, they couldn't stop their sinning, there was unholiness going on, and yet, I'm good, I'm a Christian. There was no desire for worship, there was no desire for fellowship, but I'm good, I'm a Christian, you can't say I'm not. This is what happened in the United States. Christians began to think, oh, we can't say something's not the way it is. That's judging. Now listen, the Bible's very clear. We're not to pass judgment. We're not to pass judgment. But if we love one another, we're going to confront one another in sin and say, listen, that alcohol's got a control of you, and as a believer, that is going to kill you. You need to stop that. Oh, you're judging me. No, the Bible says it's sin. It's already judged you. I'm, not, I'm saying get out of there. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, they had to learn to live with sin so much in that Corinthian church. There was a man who was living with his own father's wife, and everybody's like, oh, what can we say? Paul said this, you put him out now. And you know what? They did. In 2 Corinthians, we see that the whole church dealt with that, and they just stopped fellowshipping with that guy. And I believe that's him. In 2 Corinthians, it comes back, and Paul says, okay, he's repented, take him back in. What use is it if a man says he has faith and he has no works? What's the purpose? You know what it is? That's, that's just talk. It's empty. We don't buy it anybody else. And there's an old saying, our walk talks and our talk talks, but our walk talks louder than our talk talks. Is it important to speak for truth? Yes, it is. It's very important, but you better have a life that matches it. That's what the gospel calls for. Some of the righteous and godly works James has already mentioned in this book. Endurance, perseverance under trial, purity of life, obedience to the scripture, compassion for the needy, impartiality. Later he mentions such things as acts of compassion, controlling the tongue, humility, truthfulness, and patience. A profession of faith that is devoid of righteous works cannot save a person no matter how strongly it may be proclaimed. Now I know that we want our friends to come to Christ and you invite somebody to come to church but you're not going to save them by leading them in the magic prayer words by saying hey just say these words say them after me because when, when I've dealt with people and they come to this place I don't know what to say well if you are drowning do you know how to say help are you in trouble yeah I'm in trouble then you just tell God what the trouble is I take people many times when they understand Romans 10, 9, and 10, and I have them read it, and I say, you got to tell God that. What? Right there. That you believe you're a lost sinner and that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sin and rose again, and you wanted to be your Savior, but you got to pray it. Right there. Those words right there. But even praying those words, unless there's a heart condition, unless God has dealt with a heart you're going to be forever hanging fruit on people. Hey, you need to go to church. Hey, you need to witness. Hey, you need to clean up your life. Hey, you need to stop living with that girl. Hey, you need to quit drinking so much. Hey, you need to stop taking drugs. That's why the job of the Christian counselor is just to give people words. Not, if you're trying to talk people into being righteous and forgiving people, then you're probably dealing with a lost person who just has title over their head. What use is it, my brethren, if there's no life? 
If there's no works to back up what they say they believe, what's the purpose of that? I've often wondered why people go to church where the word is not being expounded. If you're not going to teach the word, why, why would you even go if you're not going to hear the word? I, you know. Paul and James are thought to have been in opposition to this. You know, Paul is salvation by faith and James is saying salvation by works. No, that's not, they're not in opposition at all. They're, they're standing back to back. And Paul is saying, you can't be saved by your works. It's by faith alone in Christ alone. But James is standing back to back saying, yes, but saving faith is never alone. There will be a difference in life. Paul said that in all things, believers are to show themselves to be an example of good good deeds. That sounds like James, doesn't it? Everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness, 2 Timothy 2.19. And those who profess to know God by their deeds deny him are detestable, disobedient, and worthless for any good deed. That's Paul. So verses 14 through 17, an empty faith that has no works is not worth anything. It cannot save you. Verses 15 through 16, it cannot be a blessing to others. And verse 17, it's dead by itself. He's going to get personal now. He says, let's, let's see how this doctrine, you can just say a prayer and your life doesn't change. Everything. How does that work out in the real world? You see your brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food. And you, you personal, you say to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled. And yet you do not give them what's necessary for the body. What use is that? And yet we have many Christians in American churches walking around parading their doctrinal statements. And their whole pride, their whole, their whole identity is in their doctrinal statement. Look at our great doctrinal statement. But the church is dead. And they're not reaching, but they're caring for you. They don't even care for one another. Now, make that even more personal. What, what, was that, what if that was you? If you were the one that was in need, and you needed some warm clothes for your kids, and you needed some food, and you knew there were some Christians in the congregation, and you went to them, how would you feel if they said, oh, listen, you know, we don't want to get in God's way. Why don't you go in peace? Go in peace is, is a traditional greeting or... Um, Despedida, goodbye. When you say goodbye, I can't remember the word. Anyway, um, and you, it's traditional, but that's not what it sounds like to you, is it? What does it sound like to you? It sounds like, uh, go away. Why don't you get off my step? Warm yourself, feed yourself. Is that encouraging? What do you think of a person that has the ability and they call themselves a Christian? But when there's a time and an opportunity to give, they don't. And you are the one in need. Now it gets real personal, doesn't it? So we see that faith without works is dead being by itself. It's dead by itself. Secondly, verses 18 through 20. James says, well, let's talk about doctrine. Let's talk about this useless doctrine. Verse 18, doctrine that doesn't do anything. 
he says, but someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. The someone is James. So he's asking the question. And here's his answer. You show me your faith without your works and let, you show, let me show you my faith by my works. He says, let's go a little further. You say that God is one? That's a powerful doctrinal statement. That's, that's the Jew, all the Jewish doctrine wrapped up in one. God is one. That's a good doctrine. You do well. Let me tell you something. The devils have a good doctrinal statement too. They know what truth is. They know what's coming. They have a very good doctrine about who Jesus Christ is. They know he's God. That's why when he showed up and the demons were there, they said, oh, we know who you are. Leave us alone. They know who he is. They know what truth is. They're probably better theologians than anybody in the world. The difference is they don't submit to it. That's the difference. You can know it all up here. You can have a really good doctrinal statement, a good theology, but the question is, do you submit to Christ? You know, it's a blessing to me when we've been ministering to somebody. Wallace Francis told us about his brother, Wallace... uh, brother, he'd witnessed to him very clearly. He was a very successful engineer. He just went, I believe, to be with the Lord this last, uh, this last year. And Wallace said, I, I believe he's in heaven because of the way he rejected the gospel first. He heard Wallace out and he said, Wallace, I understand what you're saying. I just don't think I'm ready to submit to that yet. It wasn't his lifestyle. He understood. It's not just acknowledging facts It was he understood the call, you need to submit to the Lord. The reason I believe he's with the Lord, and Wallace does, is because the last month of his life, all of a sudden all he was listening to was Christian music. Something changed. Before I had no interest in that. Something changed. It has an impact. The demons know truth, and it says it scares them. They know truth so well, the truth scares them. Literally, it gives them goosebumps. It causes them to shake in their boots. But they don't submit. Doctrine's a foundation. It's a foundation. But it's a foundation to build on. It's not just to sit there and admire. Oh, look at our great doctrinal statement. And I tell people when they're leaving here and they're going to look for another church... You know, I, I understand the title of the door means a little bit, so pay attention to what kind of church is it. But you know, doctrinal statements even, you, you can't really tell what a church is like by a doctrinal statement. You have to go in and see what they're living out in that church to see if that's a live church, a dead church, an angry church, a bitter church, a sinful church. Listen, when I came to this church 32 years ago, they had a great doctrinal statement. In fact, they were even legalistic, very legalistic but they were an immoral people. But oh, we got a good doctrinal statement. We've got the right doctrine. Paul gives us all of the doctrine, the teaching about the rapture, about what happens to us when when we die in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, listen, I show you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, the twinkling of an eye, the trumpet of the Lord will sound, and the dead And Christ will rise, and we which are alive and remain will be caught up together, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. You don't have to worry about the future. 
2 Corinthians 5, he said to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. But he ends 1 Corinthians 15 with verse 58. He says, therefore, because you know these truths, be immovable, steadfast, always abounding in the work of the Lord. He gives us the foundation, the doctrine, so that we can be free to serve, to work. The demons know truth, but they don't submit to it. Verse 20. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? At the church, we have people come by all the time that want a handout, especially in the summer. In the, in the winter, it's a little tough to travel across I-80, but in the summer, you know, it gets, it gets doable. And almost everybody that comes in is a Christian. And our question is, well, how can you be in this state that you can't call your family, you've got no friends to help, your church? What, what's the church you go to? Oh, well, uh, it's, um, what's your pastor's name? Uh, oh, I don't know. And we help people, but the point is, their statement means nothing to them. It's just, you know, kind of a flavor. And so if you buy the flavor, then, then no, we share the gospel with them. We pray for them. Right doctrine without obedience is useless. In verses 21 through the end of the chapter. So what does saving faith look like? We see what useless faith is, what dead faith. That's just people that talk. And it doesn't make any difference the way they live, what their values are. And it's not that these things happen overnight, is it? We grow in the Lord. But there's a change. What does it look like? Verse 21 talks about Abraham. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? See, the Bible says Abraham believed God and then he had these opportunities to trust the Lord and sometimes Abraham failed, didn't he? He'd go to a scary place and he'd say, hey, uh, Sarah, Sarah was his wife and he said, why don't you just tell them you're my sister and then if they want to marry you, they won't kill me. Oh, that's a nice protective husband. He did it more than once, and God protected him. And so we learn, just trust God for your safety. Trust God for your, secu- for your security. And then finally, he has the son of promise, Isaac, when he's past 100 years old. And God says, I know you love me, Abraham, so what I want you to do is I want you to take your only son, your son Isaac, to a mountain I'm going to show you, and I want you to sacrifice to prove your love for me. And the Bible says, Abraham got up early the next day, and he went. That's something. And they traveled for a day or so, and they came to the place, and he said, the servants, okay, you stay here, and he puts the wood upon his son, his young son, and he says, okay, now, we're going to go up here a ways, and then we're going to come back. The Bible explains that in Hebrews when it says that Abraham believed God so much he didn't know why God would ask him. He couldn't see the end of it. But if God needed to, he could raise up Isaac from the ashes after he burned him to crisp. He knew God could do that. His faith had grown. He was obedient. Say, well, wonder why God would do that. One of my favorite messages 
John Hutch preached to us a while ago was on this passage, and he asked those questions because John likes to go deep and come up with all these things I don't care about until he sought it out, and I said, that's good. Thank you. I'll take that. I'll preach it. He'll say, Paul, what do you think about this? I don't care. Go figure it out, John, then tell me. And then he comes up with these great things. But the question is, why? Why would God do that? He knew because he knows the the beginning how Abraham would respond. He knew what was going to be the result of it. He already knew what was going to happen. Abraham didn't, but God did. Why would he do that? Because God loves to enjoy our faithfulness. Wow. That hit me so hard. God's not just up there, okay, do this, do that, do the other thing. Okay, you are faithful. He is intimately involved in our lives. And when we're faithful, just like when you see your children doing well in school, being obedient at home, doing well on the athletic field, you take joy in that. Where do you think we got that from? Jesus said, if you being evil know how to love your children, how much more does your heavenly Father love you, want to give good things to you, and this, he enjoys us. That, that's hard. Chris and I were reading a devotional this morning, and it's hard to think that God really is intimately acquainted with all our needs, with our failings. We say he sees everything, but we don't act like it, do we? But what's overwhelming to me is that God cares and is there to minister and to help and to strengthen. He's that kind of God. It's personal. So first of all, saving faith is obedient to God's command. Then verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? It's about obedience. Romans 1.5 says, through him we've received grace and apostleship to bring about, get this, the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake. 1 John 5.3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Secondly, if it's live faith, it's a growing faith. It says, you see, that faith was working with his works, and a result of the works, faith was perfected. It was growing. Abraham didn't know how much he trusted God. He, he perceived it up here after it was all through. He knew. He knew he trusted God with the very life of his child, didn't he? It was real. It was perfected. It was growing. It was getting stronger. God does that in trials. That's why Paul said in Romans chapter 5, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that wonderful? He justifies us by faith. He says, but not only this, we glory in tribulations also. Paul had to come to the place of maturity in his life that he even enjoyed the time in the gym. When athletes are starting out and the coach says, all right, I want you to go see this coach, your lifting coach, and he's going to lead you in sprints and workouts, and, and you're going to be lifting, and you go, oh, But if you're going to play, you got to show up for all the meetings. But once that young athlete begins to understand what it's going to take and they desire that victory, all of a sudden, even the time in the gym, that's what Paul's talking about. We glory in the tribulation also. Why? Because what it works out. Because that tribulation works patience and patience experience. What's the experience? You've been there before. The next time you hit the same trial, say, well, I've been here with the Lord before. I know he's faithful. He's going to get us through. And that experience brings us hope, and hope makes not a shame because the love of God is spread abroad in our heart by the Holy Spirit that's given unto us. And so God uses trials in our life 
to perfect our faith. And so we're making those decisions. When God puts upon your heart to give to a needy friend and you say, well, I have this money, but I also have some more bills coming up next week. And the Lord says, trust me next week for next week, give now. What do you do? Well, when you just do what the Lord says, he blesses you and you get to see God at work in your life and the joy of that obedience and that walk with God because, listen, it's also a relational faith. The next verse says, not only is faith perfected, but the scripture is fulfilled. It's biblical. Our faith is always true to the word of God. Somebody tells you something that God's called them to do, but is contrary to Scripture, that wasn't God. One God. And people come to you and they say, but my grandpa had this experience, my old grandma, my, my old uncle, and they try to intimidate you that you have to accept their experience. I, I like what Henry Blackaby said about other people's experience. I do not deny your experience, but I reserve the right to run your experience through the lens of Scripture. I don't have to come to the same conclusion. I will not be driven by other people's experience when the word of God is what our faith is based upon. It's a biblical faith. And lastly, he says here about Abraham, and he was called the friend of God. Isn't that something? One of the things that really impacted me out of the last studies we went through in the book of Hebrews was Hebrews 11 when it says, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Isn't that something? friend of God and that's true if you belong to God even if you don't feel it yet it's true the Bible says you belong to him Jesus would have died for you in the cross if you're the only sinner that ever would have received the free gift of salvation he loved you that much he died for those that he would bring to himself his the value the worth of his death is enough to pay for all the sinners of all and all the sins that were ever committed in this word, but it's only proficient in those that receive him. And he loves you so much that he would have died just for you, which makes all of us personally accountable, doesn't it? And Abraham is called the friend of God. Then he says about justification, verse 24, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith, by, by Abraham's actions by his offering his son by him being obedient his faith growing the relationship he had with the lord you see by his works that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone you say oh that's doing something by reformed theology oh what's he saying because don't we believe that we're saved by faith alone and christ alone by grace alone yes amen we do well, the key here is the first justified, like Paul talks about. We are justified as a gift by God's grace through redemption was in Christ Jesus. The first justified pertains to acquittal. That is to declaring and treating a person as righteousness, justified. When you come to Jesus Christ, he washes your sins away. He dresses you in his righteousness, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. We have made, he has made us who knew no... He was made to be sin who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Declared. Declared. But this Greek word from the same root is present passive indicative. And here it's not made righteous, but shown to be righteous. 
we see that he is justified by his works. His life matches his statement of doctrine. His life lives out what he says he believes. Shown to be righteous. And then the last two verses, Rahab. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? And I like the fact, I mean, it's kind of strange that after she lived more of your life, probably not as a harlot, but she still had that tag. You know what it says about people that come to Christ? They can be humble. They can be humble. Years ago, I was in a trial with a fellow that I'd seen come to Christ, and the trial was about things he did before he was a Christian, and he did some pretty awful things. And between court sessions, we're out there one time, he says, man, these guys are making me look terrible. I said, you were terrible. That was you that did all those bad things, and, 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 and you deserve that, but now you're washed, now you're clean, you're a different person. Now, the court doesn't say, well, you, since you got saved, you can get away from that. I know a lot of people, there's jailhouse decisions, but that's not how the court system works. But I said, yeah, you may still have to pay for some things, but you need to take encouragement. You don't have to be ashamed anymore. You come to some churches, and they don't want to give testimonies because, I mean, getting transparent, talking about the way it used to be, ooh, what would people think of us? Here's the deal with us as believers. It's not our righteousness. We're not saved because of how good we became or how good we are, how much we knew. We're saved because of Christ's righteousness. And so we can be humble about who we used to be. And, you know, this is one of the women that's included in the lineage of Christ. Rahab and Ruth. Ruth was a pagan from another country, and Rahab was a harlot. If you don't know the story, what happened is as, as the Israelites come across the Jordan, and the first thing they come to is Jericho, and God says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to send some spies in, see what's going on in the city. So they, when they opened, these guys snuck in, and they check things out, and then what I want you to do is I want you to march around the city once every day for six days, and the seventh day I want you to rock around seven times, and the walls are going to fall out, and you're going to run and kill everybody. <laughs> what? And we're not talking about little stone walls that somebody piled up that a flock can't go on. These were wide enough people lived on the walls, like Rahab, and they say they were thick enough that you could drive a chariot across the top, more than one abreast. It was thick walls. God was just going to knock them down, give them the victory. And so they sent the spies in, and I love the fact Rahab received the messengers. They didn't call them spies because these fellows were messengers of her salvation. That's what they were. She recognized she was not worthy, but she heard about. God was working in her heart. Joshua 2, 9 through 12, she says, when we heard all that God had done and delivering the Israelites from Egypt and opening the Red Sea and all the miracles and all the victories they got, supernatural victories. When we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. What happened? She had a change of heart, didn't she? Whatever God she served before, she was convinced this was the only God. Can you imagine the joy that came out of that fear, thinking we're all going to die? We're all going to die. 
And then those guys show up at their door. How many times are we afraid to witness to people because we're afraid they're going to reject us? We don't know what's going on in their heart. It may be they're just dying for somebody to share the truth, how they could be freed from their sin and not be concerned about death anymore. And it's just on their mind. We have the message of the gospel. And so because of her faith, she said, listen, please swear to me by the Lord, since I've dealt kindly with you, that you also will deal kindly with my father's household, give me a pledge of truth. And so here's what they said. She let them escape. Some of you say, well, how could God bless her for the lie? He didn't bless her for the lie. Remember the officials came and she says, oh, they went that way. She was a new believer, so she wasn't perfect as yet. But he didn't bless her for the lie. He blessed her for her heart of believing him and her actions to protect those messengers. So she let them out with this red rope, and they said, when we come back to destroy the city, you make sure this red rope is tied around your window that you let us out from. And anybody that's in your house will be safe, and if they aren't in this room, they're going to die because everybody's going to die. And she was faithful that, and she becomes part of the line that brings in Jesus Christ. It just shows the grace of God. She was convinced he was the one true God. She trusted him, not only in helping their escape, but in obeying in her own rescue. Hebrews eleven six 6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is rewarder of those that diligently seek him. The conclusion, verse 26, Paul says, For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. He just gives us the answer all the way through from 14 to 26. Can that kind of faith save you? Faith without works? No, it can't. Because salvation is by the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's by faith in that alone. But saving faith is never alone. Do you fear God? A lot of people say, well, I'm not afraid. Well, I'll tell you something. True believers fear God's word and they fear the Lord. When I was working in uh, Gunite, uh, this big factory I worked in before I finished college, I was a crane operator in a foundry, and we had these big vats of, uh, of uh, molten steel that we would pour into molds, and we made steel wheels and, and disc brakes or drums and disc brakes for semi-trucks. And when they put all that steel into the big, huge furnace, then later they'd pour it into our ladles, and we'd pick it up and pour it one by one into those molds. They put that steel in there, turn on those, I don't know how many mega whatevers of electricity would go into that big cauldron to melt that steel, but it shook the place. And we had a healthy respect. I was not afraid to go to work, but we had a healthy respect for everything that was going on there because that thing could kill you. That's the thing about believers. We know God. We know he loves us, but we know his capabilities. We were saying about this morning, he's untamable. One day he's going to bring judgment on this earth and nothing will escape. And Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. You see, what's true about the unbelievers, they don't fear God. They figure it'll all work out. They don't have to. I'll have time. And in Romans chapter 3, Paul just quotes the psalmist and he says, 
There is none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. They've all turned aside. Together they've become useless. There's none who does good. There's not even one. Their throat's an open grave. Their tongue is, they keep deceiving. The poison of an asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery on their paths, the path of peace they have not known. Listen to this. There is no peace of God before their eyes. There is no fear of God before their eyes. They don't fear God. But we do. If you belong to him, you love him, you fear him, you follow him, you obey him, and his commands are not a burden, it's a joy. Your walk talks, and your talk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. Father, we thank you for this passage of scripture, how clear you made it, that if you're in our life, we have your life in us, that DNA that desires to glorify God, it changes us from darkness to light. And not only does it change our values and our motivations, but it changes our destination. And Lord, as believers, we look forward to your return. We look forward to one day seeing you face to face. You've taken the sting out of death for us so that we can be unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Oh, Lord, stir us up to that. And Lord, I pray if there are any here today that look at their life and realize it's just a doctrinal statement. It's just a flavor they put on their life. But the reality is their life hasn't changed. They're still controlled by the flesh. Oh, Lord, draw them to yourself. Set them free and give them life. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.